Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 9 to 13 as we're continuing on. This is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. So the verses are going to be up here on the screen, and you can also follow along in your Bible. So hear now the words of the living God. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. Why then is it that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Um, a few years ago, uh, there was a whole group of us in the church that were studying church history together. I was teaching through uh, church history for a few years, and I remember particularly in 2017, it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and we were studying a lot of the key figures. And as we were doing that, we were reading biographies of these folks and looking at them, and they were, you know, many of them heroes, and I'd studied them in the past, but it really came home to me when I read about people like Athanasius. He's an early church father who lived in the 300s. Uh, Athanasius was a great leader who stood up for the deity of Christ and was banished from his area where he was a bishop six times in his life. And reading the stories of Luther and Calvin uh, and Jonathan Edwards, all of whom had actually very difficult lives. It was a real reminder to me that we sometimes look at our heroes and we think, oh, if I could only get to live the way they lived and to get to do these things and they were remembered and people talk about them forever. And then when you look carefully into it, most of us would not want the life they actually had to live. They're remembered later, and we think what a great thing it was, but it's easy to forget the difficulties in which they lived. And in fact, they're usually remembered, in fact, because they did live in very difficult times. They had to face hard challenges, but somehow, through faith, they were able to overcome. And I thought about this this week because we're looking at Elijah, and of course, Elijah is one of the great heroes in the Old Testament. We look at people like him, and we think, oh, what it must have been like. But we can forget, if you actually read the story of Elijah, it was a very difficult time, and Elijah had a very difficult life. He was very lonely. He was struggling. And this isn't unique to us. As we're going to see in the text today, the people in Jesus' own day had forgotten what it was actually like for Elijah. They had misunderstood what it would mean that Elijah was going to come to prepare the way and misunderstood how people would in general respond to the prophet. And that leads us into also just anybody who is sent as a messenger from God, 
what that ministry is going to look like for them. So we will dive into the text now. Now, remember, this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Peter, James, and John had had, you know, what we oftentimes call a mountaintop experience. And so at the beginning of our text, you know, it says they're coming down the mountain. And I just remind you, you know, they had, we, we covered this a lot last week, but they had gone up there and they had seen the transfiguration. They had seen Jesus's uh, glory revealed before them. Um, they had also seen Moses and Elijah who were with them. And as we looked at it last week, that was a sign that it was now the time of fulfillment. So if you put yourself in their shoes, the first thing is probably they're all excited to get down and first off tell the other nine disciples, boy, did you miss it. You have no idea what went on while we were up the mountain. And then to be able to tell everyone else, this is what happened. We saw this. We were there and we saw this. Uh, let's be honest, w wouldn't you want to be doing that if you were one of them? I, I mean, today we would probably, you know, I would, I would have a book contract and I would be out on tour and I would be saying all this stuff that went on. Uh, and that's probably what they're uh, thinking. Into that, Jesus kind of bursts the bubble a little bit. In verses 9 and 10, uh, Jesus immediately gives them strict orders not to tell anyone. Now, this is kind of interesting, you know, the, the command notice that he gives them here is because we're talking, you know, Bobby began today and Greg talked about us going out and telling people. And we're going to talk about that some this morning. Why on earth is Jesus telling them not to tell anyone? And we've seen this in the gospel many times. But notice the command is not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So this is not a general command for, uh, for everyone or even for them for the rest of life. It is only until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And we read, for example, in the book of Acts, because even after the resurrection, Jesus says, wait until the Spirit comes. But when the Spirit comes, then you are going to go out and be my witnesses. And so once the disciples receive the Spirit, they and all other Christians are sent to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but it's another lesson to us in how to read the Bible. Because we don't read, don't tell anyone, and say, oh, that's a command to me. That's a command we would sometimes like, right? Because as we're going to see today, telling people is not always popular. And so I would love to take this verse and say, well, I would like to tell you, but Jesus told me not to. No, he didn't. This is only for a specific group at a specific time. And so we have to remember to properly open up God's word to understand what he's actually saying. And Part of the reason why at this point is the disciples are very confused. Notice it says uh, there in verse 10, they are keeping the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Okay, they're, they're picked and they're like, I know what rising means and I know what dead means, but I don't understand what in the world Jesus is talking about, which is very consistent in the Gospels. And it's one of the reasons that it's going on here. Because see, the confusion is not over the resurrection. There are people today who might be confused by this phrase because they think when you die, it's over. But the disciples were Orthodox Jews. They believed in the resurrection. Uh, they knew that a resurrection was going to come. Uh, so that was not the problem. 
The problem they've got is, why would the Son of Man be rising from the dead? That's where the confusion comes in. Jesus has come, <clears throat> and as the Son of Man, he's going to be raising everyone else from the dead. But he's not going to die. Why would he die? He's here. We just saw the Mount of Transfiguration. We just saw the glorious person that you truly are. We've confessed that you're the Christ. You've admitted that you're the Messiah. And Moses and Elijah are here. It's the time of fulfillment. You're gonna go down to Jerusalem. You're gonna deal with the enemies of the people of God. You're going to be installed as the king. You're gonna be accepted. You're gonna be adored. You're going to be worshiped and obeyed by everyone. And I'm sure, Lord, we're probably gonna be sitting on thrones around you we're going to have this great place what are you talking about rising from the dead and Jesus in essence is saying and that's precisely why I don't want you going out and talking yet because you don't understand what's actually going to be happening here they have to be quiet and actually if we're honest I've seen this in my own life sometimes you have an experience with God and you don't really understand yet and I want to start explaining why something happened and I don't really understand what has happened or why. That's kind of what's going on with the disciples. They're wanting to rush out and tell everybody, but Jesus is here continuing their training. He is still trying to tell them, you, you've come to understand who I am and you just saw it on the mount, but you don't understand what that means and therefore you can't understand what's gonna happen to you as my messengers. And so, now we'll, we'll kind of look at what, what it means to be the messenger, the ministry of a messenger of God. And it's in their training here that Jesus reveals this. Now this begins with a question about Elijah. And the disciples aren't here just being obtuse. You know, we, we have an example, like you remember the, the woman at the well in Samaria. When Jesus starts to press in on her, you remember she comes up with an evasive question, right? Okay, Lord, you're starting to convict me of my sin, so I have a theological night. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen, Lord? Right? But that's not what's going on here. Why are the disciples bringing up Elijah? Because they just saw him, and they've heard about Elijah, and so they ask him, they say, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? We've heard that Elijah was going to come. The teachers of the law have said this, but why is it that they're saying that? Because we just saw Elijah up there, but now you're telling us not to go and tell anybody, but we thought Elijah was going to come and do all this. Now, the reason that they're saying this is many people did have an expectation. It was very common in Judaism at this time that Elijah was going to come before the day of the Lord and the, the arrival of the Messiah, and he was gonna prepare the way. And we looked at this briefly last week, but you remember the last verses chronologically uh, that God had revealed. The, the Jews had a different order to their Bible. So Second Chronicles, as we call it, Second Chronicles is the final book in the Old Testament in the Jewish ordering. But the last revelation of God had come to Malachi. And in fact, the very last words that God spoke historically before the coming of Messiah was this in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then they kind of almost stop there because Elijah's gonna come and he's gonna be successful. He's gonna restore everything. They're not paying attention to the last verse, which is, or else 
you might not receive Elijah, and then I'm going to have to come and strike the land with a curse. So many Jews took this to mean that Elijah is going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And if you remember, as we've looked in the Gospels, and you can see this regarding John the Baptist and also regarding Jesus. They know that something, they know Jesus is powerful. And some people think he might be Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. If they don't understand that he's Messiah, he's somebody great. So he might be a prophet or he might even be Elijah himself. You can see that in Mark chapter 6. And the Bibles, excuse me, the Disciples, they're not Bible experts yet. Remember, these were like, you know, fishermen and all this. But they're not Bible experts yet, but they have heard this. And they're saying, well, we can put two and two together. We've heard this, and we just saw Elijah. Therefore, it must be that time. He's coming to restore all things, which makes it even more confusing. What are you talking about the Son of Man rising from the dead? Isn't Elijah going to appear so everyone knows that you're the Messiah? And then this is it. Um, so that's their question. That's what's going on with them. That's what they're struggling with. Now, Jesus then begins to deal, and this is a key part of what we're looking at, is the relationship between Elijah and John the Baptist, who's been very important in the gospel. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, look, you are right. To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And that's a phrase out of Malachi uh, that, that he does that. And also out of Isaiah chapter 40, that there's this messenger coming. But Jesus then poses his own question. Well, if Elijah's coming to restore all things first, why is it written that the Son of Man has to suffer and be rejected? If what everybody thinks restores all things means is everything is wonderful, Elijah prepares the way, the Messiah is going to come in, the Messiah is going to be crowned, everything is going to be glorious and wrapped up, then why does the Scripture say the Son of Man has to suffer first? This is like later on we're going to see where Jesus asked them, who is the Messiah? And they say, David's son. And Jesus says, well, in Psalm 110, David calls him Lord. How's he his Lord if he's his son? How does that work? He's pointing out, you all haven't thought through what the scripture says very carefully. And so you haven't thought through what it means that Elijah is going to restore all things. So Jesus is using this phrase again, the son of man, who who in Daniel, where we see the Son of Man, he's, he's ascending to the throne and there's all this glory. But Jesus is saying, but you've missed the other parts. The Son of Man is going to suffer. The teachers of the law, who the disciples have heard, has said that Elijah's gonna come, he's gonna prepare the way, and the Messiah would be gladly received and enthroned. And they were rejecting any idea that the Messiah could suffer, that the Messiah could be rejected, or the Messiah would die. They, they are saying, no, that's not going to happen. When Messiah comes, of course, we are going to recognize him. And of course, we are going to receive him gladly. The only problem with that is Everything in the Old Testament from Genesis 1-1 to Malachi 4-5 where we just read, 
everything in there says, no, that's not what you would expect. Consider actually from the very, very beginning, the very first time it's mentioned that a Savior is going to come to deliver us is in Genesis chapter 3, 15. There is a seed who is going to come from the woman, but we read he's going to crush the serpent's head, but what's going to happen to him? The serpent's going to strike him and his heel is going to be bruised, or actually it's the same word for crushing his head. There's going to be a blow to him. And when we read throughout from that point forward, we read that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, is going to suffer. And that's true from Genesis 3:15, the first mention, all the way through the Old Testament, which Jesus constantly brings up. When you look at the history of Israel, when you look in the prophets, and when you look in the Psalms, they are replete with references to the righteous one suffering. And that includes even the Messiah. This is most clearly seen in the servant songs of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 53 is probably one of the the clearest places. But here in Isaiah 53, we'll put up verse three. Notice it's speaking of the servant of Yahweh. Okay, now the, the teachers of the law would say, well, the servant of Yahweh is going to be revered. He's going to be received. He's going to be blessed because we're waiting for him. But here's what Isaiah 53 actually says. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. Uh, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now what they want to say is, well, see, it's others that are going to do that. But notice Isaiah says, who didn't esteem him? We did not. We, the people of God, did not esteem him. And this was what the teachers of the law refused to see. They would not open their mind to this. And we're going to see Jesus continually debating with them over this point. And here's the reality. At this point, the disciples still don't get it. They understand he's the king. They don't understand he's the king who came to die. They don't understand what that ministry is going to look like. And this leads to the next point in Isaiah, I mean in Mark 9:13. If you notice what Jesus says in Mark 9:13 is, so look, yes, Elijah's going to come, he's going to restore all things, but what about the Son of Man suffering and dying? And then Jesus brings it back to Elijah again. He says, But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Now Jesus is being clear here, Elijah has come. And this is a reference to John the Baptist. And the New Testament is, is full of this relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. Gabriel, uh, the angel, had appeared to Zechariah even before John the Baptist's birth. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That phrase, to turn the hearts of the fathers to children, is what we just saw in Malachi. And to make a way prepared for the Lord is Isaiah chapter 40, which Mark begins his gospel conflating the Malachi passage and the passage out of Isaiah chapter 40. And so he's saying that, that John the Baptist, notice here, is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
But what's uh, interesting is if, as you think about it, and I'll go into this a little bit more in after hours. It'll come out Tuesday and explain the, the linking between them. But just briefly, you know, Elijah and John, you can see they're both rough men of the wilderness. They do much of their ministry out in the wilderness. They're both sent to call a wayward people back to God. Elijah and John both have conflicts with a wicked king and a wicked queen. Both of them. I mean, there are very few of the queens in the Old Testament that are given much prominence, but if, as you remember, actually, Ahab and Jezebel, she is given great prominence, and we see the exact same thing with Herod and Herodias in the New Testament. And they both have powerful ministries, and they see some people turn to the Lord, but here's the thing that they don't want to see. He's going on in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going like Elijah but all the teachers of the law were wanting to say was, wasn't it wonderful what Elijah did? To which the response is, have you actually read the story of Elijah in the Old Testament? Because was he received by most of the people? No. You remember when he's actually in the cave, if you go back at one point, he said, Lord, there's nobody left. It is just me. He had just defeated the prophets of Baal. He's done all of this. It didn't rain for three and a half years except by his word. All this powerful stuff. But Elijah said, there's no one. And the Lord said, actually, that's not true. There's 7,000 people. Out of the whole nation, there's 7,000. That is all there is. And so there's this link between the two that is there, but part of it is the link, and this is what was missed. Everybody's saying, well, when Elijah comes, everyone's going to restore him. And Jesus is saying, have you read the Old Testament? That is never the pattern. That is not what the Old Testament teaches over and over again. In fact, it is a consistent pattern for the Lord's messengers. They come and they are not received by the people of God. Over and over again, they are not received. And this is true even after the exile. In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 4, Zechariah, who is a prophet, and he writes, after the people have come back to the land from Babylon, Zechariah has been sent to the Lord. He's encouraging the people to rebuild the temple. And the Lord speaks this through Zechariah. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So notice it's after the exile and, and the Lord is saying, look, don't be like your fathers because I sent prophets to them and you all keep thinking it was wonderful, but they consistently rejected the prophets. They did not want to hear the prophets. That's why they went into exile. And now Zechariah is saying, we're back from exile. And what is the danger you're facing? behaving exactly like your forefathers had done, which was why they went into exile. So God's summary of Israel's response to the prophets all the way through their history is, I raise up a prophet, I send the prophet, the prophet has to speak and confront the sin in the people, and the people reject, and in fact often 
kill the prophets. They, they reject and do that. And the generation after the exile is repeating it with Zechariah and Haggai. Both of them, you can read the prophet Haggai and, there is, and also in Malachi, there are these conversations between God and the people and the people do not want to believe what God is actually saying to them. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could say, but in the new covenant, it won't be that way. But we can't say that. Because Jesus, in his probably most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning, he's got the Beatitudes. And if you remember with the Beatitudes, who in here wants to be blessed? Right? We, we all want to be blessed. But notice the things that Jesus says about being blessed. It's not summarized by saying, you will have a nice, easy life. That's not what he says. In fact, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter five, he says, blessed are you when people insult you. Now, let's be honest. Who in here says that? Who, if I said, hey, come down front and I'm gonna play a blessing over you and I pray and say, may you be insulted by everyone you know this week. I mean, you would say, that was a defective blessing. Don't get that guy to bless you, right? <laughs> right? If I ended the meeting every week and say, may you go forth and be insulted. But notice what Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. I mean, at this point, you gotta be saying, Jesus, seriously? This is not, I don't understand what you're saying, but notice what he says. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Understand, if you're my disciple, I am sending you out on mission. You are a messenger. You are going forth with the words of life, the good news, and you should expect to be treated exactly like the prophets. And the prophets, despite what everybody thinks, everybody says, oh, it must have been glorious if I could be Elijah and call fire down from heaven. And Jesus is saying, are you reading the rest of the story? Because what ends with most of these guys, I mean, Elijah gets whisked off to heaven in a chariot of fire. Most of them, how does their life end? Martyrdom. Over and over and over again, their life ends in martyrdom. And Jesus says, you should expect the same treatment as the Old Testament prophets. But he says, but look, notice, you can still rejoice. Why? Is it because I'm a sadomasochist and I like being treated this way? No, because great is your reward in heaven. And this is the link that we've been seeing throughout this gospel. See, Jesus had said the same thing. If you go back right before the Mount of Transfiguration, the last thing he said is, look, don't be ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and wicked age because I am going to come. And I'm going to come in the Father's glory. And the angels are going to come down. That's where you have your focus. Not this passing age. Your focus is on the final day. And you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus said, see, that's what kept the prophets going. I'm not going to put the, the passage up, but if you read in Hebrews 11, I love that we're told Moses was able to endure because he saw Christ and he considered the sufferings of this life to be nothing. 
It didn't matter that he had lost all the treasures of Egypt. It didn't matter that he had been run out of town on a rail. It didn't matter that he had to spend all those years out watching sheep, waiting for the Lord to call him back. It didn't matter that he had to spend 40 years in the wilderness with the nation. None of that mattered because he knew what was in front of him. And so this is what also sustained Elijah and the other prophets. It's what sustained the apostles, and it's what's going to sustain us if we're going to be faithful. If you're going to be a messenger of the Lord, you're not going to be sustained by the response you're getting from the people around you. Because very often, this is the bad news. Jesus, do you hear what Jesus is saying? See, we want to read it. And, and we're masters at this. We want to say it's kind of like Elijah in them. It's kind of like what it would be to be Isaiah or what it would be to be Moses. And Jesus is saying, you've clearly not read the story. It, it is always full of conflict and difficulty. All those great people in church history, uh, I, that's often the way it was. Uh, they, they constantly went through strife. I didn't even realize when I was reading it, J- John Calvin had been called for by Geneva, went there, and then they voted and told him, go away. And then they got in trouble and said, would you come back? And he begged in tears, I don't want to go back to that place. I do not want to go back. And all the other pastors said, no, you need to go back. And then he was still, well, thank you for coming back, but we still don't like you. And you spend your life that way. That's what has been the case. So, then we have to think about what that means for us today. So we want to talk about it applying the word. And it's a twofold thing. There's two questions, but they're related and they're pretty simple. Number one, do I see I'm called to be a messenger of the king? Because see, when I hear this, I would like to say, okay, my verse is don't tell anyone. I don't have to deal with this because then I don't have to deal with the rejection. But the reality is, as a believer, we are called to go forth with the good news. It's a universal call. It's not just a gift. You don't, I don't get to say, well, evangelism's not really my gift. Well, that's okay. It's not a gift. It's a responsibility. And it is given to every believer in Jesus Christ. Yeah, but you don't know the guys where I work. Doesn't matter. I know what they're like. They're like everyone else. We are called to share the gospel. And I want to encourage you as we're doing this, please remember, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. We actually do have good news. Your family, your friends, and your neighbors need it. Whether they recognize it or not, whether they even think that it's good news or not, they absolutely need it. The people around you and me, and this is, this has become increasingly true over the recent years, they are longing for and they are restlessly running around and seeking. And what they are longing for and what they are restlessly seeking for is found in Christ. It is not found anywhere else. The, the newest piece of technology is not going to scratch that itch in their soul. The, the latest, greatest thing coming down the pike, the, the newest philosophy is not going to fill it for them. Only Christ can. And every one of us are called to be messengers. The difficulty is 
if you and I are called to be messengers, what should we expect based on what Jesus is saying about John the Baptist, Elijah, and all the other prophets? Am I gonna go out and everybody's gonna say, this is so awesome, please keep preaching to me. It's not going to happen, friends. That's not what we should expect. And that leads to the second question. You and I are called to be messengers of the king. Everyone, this is not for a few people. It is every believer is called to be a messenger of the king. But the second question is, do I see that I'm called to be faithful, not successful? Now this is important because modern Americans think in terms of success. The scripture thinks in terms of faithfulness and they are two different things. We like to look and say when we focus on success and if we do that, who wants to be a messenger of the Lord? Isaiah in his call, if you read Isaiah chapter six, he has this vision of God and all of his glory. And the Lord says, you know, who's gonna go out with our message? And says, Isaiah says, I will. Here am I, Lord, send me. And the Lord says, okay, I'm gonna send you and here's what's gonna happen. Nobody's gonna listen. They're all going to ignore you and the entire country's gonna go into exile. Go Isaiah. I mean, who wants that call, Right? I mean, at that point, Lord, is there another call? It's like, come join our football team, and here's what you can know. We will be 0-17. You're the quarterback. You're going to get sacked like 12 times a game. Nobody wants to sign up for that, right? But that's because we're thinking in terms of success. God says, I want you to be thinking in terms of faithfulness. Think about the two guys we're, we're looking at a little bit today, Elijah and John the Baptist. Were they successful by modern standards? No. Very few people listened. John the Baptist ended up with his head on a platter, brought in great difficulty. They were not successful by modern standards, but they were faithful. And the reality is that faithfulness actually produced great fruit because how many of us, you know, Elijah lived some like 800 years before Jesus. How many other people can you name that lived in 800 BC? Everybody throw out some names. We don't know hardly anyway. <laughs> yeah, Jezebel, that's right. We know almost nobody. From that. Why do we know Elijah. It's not because he was successful, it's because he was faithful. He was faithful in his own day and God has allowed that to rebound down. And the same thing is true of John the Baptist. See, Ahab and Jezebel and Herod and Herodias, they were successful. They had the riches, everybody knew who they were. Oh, if I could have the life that they've got. But they were not faithful and you don't want to be handcuffed to them on Judgment Day. You just don't. The, the people they persecuted, the prophets they ran off, the guys who lived in the caves and struggled, those guys are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Everything you have ever longed and thought for and even more is yours for eternity. Ahab, Jezebel, I hope you enjoyed your 40 years or 50 years. It's all you ever had. And the same thing for Herod and Herodias. And so 
in a sense, I want to encourage us with this. Our task is not to make people believe. You, you can't do that, nor can I. I can't make anyone believe. I can't make anyone embrace Christ. I can't make them live the way they ought to live. That's not my task. My task is to proclaim the truth of the gospel and to live a life that is in accord with the truth and is worthy of the gospel, to use Paul's phrase in Philippians. If I am by the Holy Spirit, the best I can, going to be falling short, but I'm living in obedience to the call of the gospel. And as God opens doors, I share with them, God is not saying, yeah, but they didn't turn to Jesus. That's not my task. I can't do that. My task is to faithfully speak the truth, just like John did, just like Elijah did. And then the Holy Spirit is going to have to work to open their eyes and turn their hearts. So <clears throat> the sub-question for this is, am I being a faithful messenger of the Lord regardless of the response of others? Now let's be honest, don't, we, we don't wanna get real religious here. It'd be easy to say, oh yes, because I don't care what other people think. Well, Elijah and John the Baptist struggled with the lack of response. You remember Elijah, after the thing, he's in the cave, Lord, there's nobody here, it'd be better for me if I died. Okay, that's, that's a pretty big moment of depression there. You remember John the Baptist, when he was in jail, he sent, after he had so boldly proclaimed, this is the Lamb of God, everybody look to Jesus, he's the one, he's coming, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And then John's been sitting in jail for a while, and what does he send a question to Jesus, what is it? I thought you were the one, this isn't quite working out like I thought it was going to. Was I wrong about this? Remember, and then Jesus sends him back. He says, and he says, there's never been a prophet as great as John. So if John can struggle with that, you and I can struggle with that. It would be easy for us to do it. But friends, you've got the message of life that people desperately need. They've got nowhere else to go rather than you and me. And so our call is to share the truth as compassionately and clearly as we can and cry out for the Holy Spirit to do what he can do, which is raise the dead. Another example you could use, you remember Ezekiel, he has the vision of the valley of dry bones and the Lord says, hey Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And I love you know, Ezekiel's answer, which is, only you know, O Lord. <laughs> Doesn't look too good to me. And the Lord says, just stand up and prophesy, son of man. You just stand up and speak the word. And as Ezekiel keeps speaking, he sees the people being raised from the dead. The Lord's saying the same thing to us. Friend, can you raise someone from the dead? You can't, I can't, no, okay. But the Holy Spirit can. And so our job, and this should be freeing to us, I can't make believers. I can just simply say, here's the truth. Here's the good news. You are made in the image of God and God has loved you from before you were born. And he has created you for relationship with him. And you don't, it's not about your works. It's not about you getting everything right. Christ has opened this up for you. If they receive that, that is awesome. If they don't, and they say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, okay, I'll just keep praying for you. 
I will just keep praying and I will keep sharing to do it. And so I encourage you, there's a, the time in the gospels where one of the disciples goes to the others and says, you know, come and see. That's basically what our call is. A great way is just even ask, hey, come and see. Just come gather with God's people and worship and be here and just experience what God is doing in the midst of us. If we are honest and we look back, I don't know your personal testimony. I can tell you if you would have asked most of my friends like a week before I got saved. As a matter of fact, if on the Friday night that I was stoned out of my mind and I got saved on Sunday afternoon, people were not putting, I wasn't a good odds to lay in that that guy's about to turn to Jesus. Okay? Not at all the case. But the Holy Spirit was working. I didn't even realize what was going on. He is right. You and I never know. We're just called to share. Now, the second thing in that is I'm going to go back to last week in applying the word. We talked about the glimpse of glory, and that's why these stories are together. Am I sustaining faithfulness by regular glimpses of glory? See, it's, if we don't have those, then I'm going to keep sliding back into success mode. But if we keep having this, then we can continue to be faithful. We can continue to reach out. We can continue to speak the truth. Without it, we waver and are silent. With it, we can be faithful. So that's why, remember, I mean, this, we're told, this is why they just saw the transfiguration and now this discussion happens. Okay, Jesus is weaving these things together. He had told them, don't be ashamed of me. I'm gonna come again. They see him in his glory, and now he's explaining to them, look, this is what happens to the messengers. Don't, everybody misunderstands what was going to happen to Elijah when he came. He came, and they did everything to him they wanted to because they rejected him just like they did the first time. But because the disciples had had that glimpse, that's why to go back to what Bobby opened with this morning, you know, hey, you apostles, you be quiet. You stop talking about Jesus. We, we can't do it. We have to tell what we have seen and heard. What else could we possibly do? And I want to be clear, this is, so this is not about your strength and resolve or mine. It's not about, well, I'm a warrior and nobody's going to make me back down. You and I are going to fail if we do that. It's Elijah and John the Baptist couldn't gut it through, nor can we. But if we are transformed, as we are regularly beholding Jesus, and as we are thinking on eternity and what is to come, that's going to open doors for us to share. There's a verse in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 17. That's what Paul says. Now then, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now think about that for a moment. How much does God the Father have? Everything. And what Paul is saying is, you are a co-heir. You're not just an heir, you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. It means you're getting the portion like Jesus is getting. Is that a good, is that a good portion? I mean, that's an inheritance, friends. I, I don't care who you have that would leave you an inheritance. It can't begin to match this. And the Apostle Paul says, look, because you are a child of God, this is your future. God looks to you like the father in the parable of the prodigal son and says, everything I have is yours. 
It is all yours. This is what awaits you. But then notice how he ends. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The biblical pattern is there's a cross, then there's a crown. There's lament, then there's praise. There's suffering, and then there's glory. I wish I could tell you, hey, Bay Ridge has a special membership program, and it lets you skip the suffering part. But I would be lying. There is no such track. But if we remember what's on the other side, that can sustain us and keep us as we are going through this trek. I was thinking the other day just briefly about this, you know, what was it like for the original pilgrims and people that were coming over here? I mean, was that voyage any fun at all? I mean, it was awful. You know, you read the stories. They were all sick. Why were they doing that? Because of what was on the other side. What was on the other side was a thing they had been longing for, they had been looking for. Friends, that's exactly what it is. You and I are on a, jo- on a voyage. And on this voyage, we're supposed to be telling others about the gospel. And their response may be downright hostile. But when we do, we just say, it's a short voyage and a long eternity. And so I can put up with whatever's on the voyage for the glory that's going to come. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And here at this table, we see Christ's suffering and Christ's glory. And we remember that it's Christ's suffering that saves us, not our own works. And that he is bringing us to eternal glory. And what we're going to do is, I want us to all stand for a moment. We're going to do just a short confession that is oftentimes done in many churches. This is a refrain that is used. And it's based on basically 1 Corinthians 15. And it's very simple. It's Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ has suffered, but he has overcome and risen, and he's going to come again with glory that's going to be revealed to all. Friends, that is the pattern, not only of Christ's life, but of yours and mine. So I want to encourage us together, we're going to to, to say this ancient creed, if you will. Christ has died, he has risen, and Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, let's rehearse the faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's do it one more time. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. You can go ahead and be seated. If you believe this faith and you have trust in that, you are welcome to this table. You don't have to be a member of our congregation. We just encourage you that if you're not a believer, you let it pass. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to participate uh, with us in this. And as we do this, uh, they'll be passing out the elements in just a moment. You'll hold on. Remember to grab both cups. And if you need gluten-free, you can hold your hand up and they'll do that. Brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup, 
He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to pass out the elements. As we do, I encourage you to be thinking through this pattern of what it means and to ask the Lord to let you have a glimpse of that glory to sustain you so that you and I can be faithful on this sometimes weary journey. And then we will take together in a couple moments. Lord, when you took flesh to rescue and save us, you endured suffering, rejection, and death. Like a grain of wheat, your body was slain and planted in the ground. But you taught that if a seed dies, it produces many seeds. So we are here today, those who came to life through your death and resurrection. And as your people, we receive now the bread of life, giving you thanks for the salvation we have in you. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, the suffering you experienced throughout life was concentrated on that final day. When on the cross you suffered, bled, and died for us. But through your suffering on the cross, we have been delivered from Satan, sin, and eternal death. Lord, as grapes were crushed to fill this cup, so you were crushed so that we might freely drink from the cup of salvation. So we now receive the cup of life, giving thanks for the salvation we have in you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. And let's stand for a closing prayer and blessing. Lord, at this table, and through your word, we have been reminded of how you suffered and died for us. And Lord, what a comfort this is as we face our own trials and sufferings. You were forsaken, and so now we can know that we will never be forsaken. And at this table, Lord, we're also reminded that you have conquered death and that one day you will return and you will judge the living and the dead. So Lord, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to live in light of that day, in light of eternity, rather than this fading world. Lord, we long to hear on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant. So help us, Lord, to pledge our heads to heaven now bearing whatever scorn, reproach, or suffering might come our way as we faithfully obey and proclaim your word. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant and the reigning king. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Now may the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, 
May he himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. You are blessed with inexhaustible, eternal blessings. So go forth and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.